0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is Thursday, October 21st, and it's our 124th episode. We are returning to Foreign Affairs, a brand new November-December issue where we will read one of the essays in that magazine entitled The Technopolar Moment, How Digital Powers Will Reshape the Global Order by Ian Bremming. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Harper. How are you this morning? I'm, I'm doing fine. Doing fine. Excellent. Well, are you excited to get into this article?
1: Yeah, it sounds like a very interesting article. I'm looking forward to it.
0: I definitely read ahead, and it is very interesting. I'm uh, good. I'm excited about it. Yeah, I have not read it, but I'm looking forward to it. As I loudly click on my keyboard, let me pull it up. And shall we just uh, jump right into it?
1: Yep. How Digital Powers Will Reshape the Global Order. Very, very fascinating title. So... By Ian Bremmer. Okay,
0: yeah, let's do it. Let's uh, let's start the article. Um, here we go. Okay. Uh, switching over to the article itself, uh, we see Technopolar Moment: How Digital Powers Will Reshape the Global Order. Ian Bremmer is the president of the Eurasia Group. I don't know exactly what that means, but uh, hey, it is what it is. Uh, we could we could look up the Eurasia Group. Should we do that real quick?
1: Sure to see uh, the perspective uh, that group has.
0: Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, I looked that up. I looked up last. I looked that up last night, but uh, or yesterday.
0: Okay, let's take a look then. Well, Eurasia group. Eurasia group is a group of highly talented, diverse and motivated, oops, motivated people who are dedicated to defining the business of politics. In 1998, Ian Bremmer founded the Eurasia Group. The Eurasia Group is a political risk consultancy founded in 1998 by Ian Bremmer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Whatever that means. So, um, they're a risk consultant. They're consultancy. And uh, Mm -hmm. we don't typically have a lot of just straight up consultants. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. foreign affairs and the pages of foreign affairs oftentimes it's uh, you know former diplomats, it's people in academia but it's rarely just flat out consultants. yeah um, so
1: this is a, this is a big good perspective
0: mm-hmm. um, I guess we could also look at Ian Bremmer, if we wanted to his he's an American political science. Focus on global political risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stanford PhD. Okay, so I mean, I'm thinking he's probably a pretty smart guy. And reading the article, you know, he has his ideas about what the future is going to look like. And let's get into it, okay?
1: He was a Lawrence Livermore.
0: Yeah. He was.
1: It's probably connected through Stanford.
0: Yeah, I think so. So, The Technopolar Moment, How Digital Powers Will Reshape the Global Order, by Ian Bremmer, beginning the article. After rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, some of the United States' most powerful institutions sprang into action to punish the leaders of the failed insurrection. But they weren't the ones you might expect. Facebook and Twitter suspended the accounts of President Donald Trump for posts praising the rioters. Amazon, Apple, and Google effectively banished Parler, an alternative to Twitter that Trump supporters had used to encourage and coordinate the attack by blocking its access to web hosting services and app stores. Major major financial service apps such as PayPal and Stripe stopped processing payments for the Trump campaign and for accounts that had funded travel expenses to Washington, D.C. for Trump supporters. The speed of these technologies companies reactions. Stands, in stark contrast to the feeble response from the United States governing institutions. The Congress still has not censured Trump for his role in the storming of the Capitol. Its efforts to establish a bipartisan 9-11-style commission failed amid Republican opposition. Law enforcement agencies have been able to arrest some individual rioters, but in many cases only by tracking clues they left on social media about their participation in the fiasco. States have been the primary actors in global affairs for nearly 400 years. That has started to change, as a handful of large technology companies rival them for geopolitical influence. The aftermath of the January 6th riot serves as the latest proof that Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Twitter are no longer merely large companies. They have taken control of aspects of society, the economy, and national security that were long the exclusive preserve of the state. The same goes for Chinese technology companies such as Alibaba, ByteDance, and Tencent. Non state actors are increasingly shaping geopolitics, with technology companies in the lead. And although Europe wants to play, its companies do not have the size or geopolitical influence to compete with their American and Chinese counterparts. Most of the analysis of U.S. Chinese technological competition, however, is stuck in a statist paradigm. It depicts technology companies as foot soldiers in a a conflict between hostile countries. But technology companies are not mere tools in the hands of governments. None of their actions, in the immediate aftermath of the capital insurrection, for instance, came at the behest of government or law enforcement. These were private decisions made by for-profit companies exercising power over code, servers, and regulations under their control. These companies are increasingly shaping the global environment in which governments operate. They have huge influence over the technologies and services that will drive the next industrial revolution, determine how countries project economic and military power, shape the future of work, and redefine social contracts. It is time to start thinking of the biggest technology companies as similar to states. These companies exercise a form of sovereignty over a rapidly expanding realm that extends beyond the reach of regulators – digital space. They bring resources to geopolitical competition but face constraints on their power to act. They maintain foreign relations and answer to constituencies, including shareholders, employees, users, and advertisers. Political scientists rely on a wide array of terms to classify governments. There are democracies, autocracies, and hybrid regimes, which combine elements of both but they have no such tools for understanding big tech. It's time they started developing them, for not all technology companies operate in the same way. Even though technology companies, like countries, resist neat classifications, there are three broad forces that are driving their geopolitical postures and worldviews. Globalism, nationalism, and techno-utopianism. These categories illuminate the choices facing the biggest technology firms as they work to shape global affairs. Will we live in a world where the internet is increasingly fragmented and technology companies serve the interests and goals of states in which they reside? Or will big tech decisively wrest control of the digital space from governments, freeing itself from national boundaries and emerging as a truly global force? Or could the era of state dominance finally come to an end, supplanted by a techno-elite that assumes responsibility for offering the public goods once provided by governments? Analysts, policymakers, and the public would do well to understand the competing outlooks that determine how these new geopolitical actors wield their power, because the interplay among them will define the economic, social, and political life of the 21st century." Okay.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a start. What a beginning. That, Yeah. See, that's the first I've heard this article. Uh, You've read it before. Have you read it before, David? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's the first time I heard it. It's very, very interesting. He brings up some very good points, some excellent points. And uh, it's to me, the points he brings up is is not hypothetical. Uh, This is happening. Uh, And it's perspective that he has, which is very which is you can't ignore. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think. And you have to think about that. And uh, and so can can governments regulate the power? What happens when the tech companies have more power than the governments?
0: I don't know. I think we're going to find out soon. I, I think they do have more power in certain areas. One thing that a I certain- noticed, and this was I think I told you about this yesterday, is that we got a little fallacy of trifurcation going on. Um, we got. So, oh, the is for one. We got a a fallacy of trifurcation in which he says, if we look at this, um, there's going to be three potential, uh, three potential geopolitical postures and worldviews: globalism, nationalism, and techno utopianism. Um, that's all well and good, if You believe that, but I think the answer, there's a million shades of gray, and it's not going to be one of those three. It'll be a combination of those three. Um, That's what we're seeing now. That's what we'll see into the future. And I think that he does a good job of saying, you know, a more globalist thing will look like this, a more nationalist will look like this, a techno-utopian will look like this. But I do think that regardless of what happens, if you sort of think that these three are a catch-all for what could happen, it'll be some combination of the three. That's my, my opinion anyway. So, um, shall we continue? Uh, Do you want me to read? Okay. Um, Big Tech is watching you. That is the next uh, thing that we got. Next section header. And let's go for it. To understand how the struggle for geopolitical influence between technology firms and governments will play out, it is important to grasp the nature of these companies' power. The tools at their disposal are unique in global affairs, which is why governments are finding it hard to rein them in. Although this isn't the first time that private corporations have played a major role in geopolitics. Consider the East India Company and Big Oil, for example. Earlier giants could never match the pervasive global presence of today's technology firms. It is one thing to wield power in the smoke-filled rooms of political power brokers. It is another to directly affect the livelihoods, relationships, security, and even thought patterns of billions of people across the globe. Today's biggest technology firms have two critical advantages that have allowed them to carve out independent geopolitical influence. First, they do not operate or wield power exclusively in physical space. They have created a new dimension in geopolitics – digital space – over which they exercise primary influence. People are increasingly living out their lives in this vast territory which governments do not and cannot fully control. The implications of this fact bear on virtually all aspects of civic, economic, and private life. In many democracies today, politicians' ability to gain followers on Facebook and Twitter unlocks the money and political support needed to win office. That is why the technology company's actions to de-platform Trump after the Capitol Hill riot were so powerful. For a new generation of entrepreneurs, Amazon's marketplace and web hosting services, Apple's App Store, Facebook's ad targeting tools, and Google's search engine have become indispensable for launching successful businesses. Big tech is even transforming human relationships. In their private lives, people increasingly connect with one another through algorithms. Technology companies are not just exercising a form of sovereignty over how citizens behave on digital platforms. They are also shaping behaviors and interactions. The little red Facebook notifications deliver dopamine hits to your brain. Google's artificial intelligence algorithms complete sentences while you type. And Amazon's methods of selecting which products pop up at the top of your search screen affect what you buy. In these ways, technology firms are guiding how people spend their time, what professional and social opportunities they pursue, and ultimately, what they think. This power will grow as social, economic, and political institutions continue to shift from the physical world to digital space. The second way these technology companies differ from their formidable predecessors is that they are increasingly providing a full spectrum of both the digital and the real-world products that are required to run a modern society. Although private companies have long played a role in delivering basic needs, from medicine to energy, today's rapidly digitizing economy depends on a more complex array of goods, services, and information flows. Currently just four companies – Alibaba, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft meet the bulk of the world's demand for cloud services, the essential computing infrastructure that has kept people working and children learning through the COVID-19 pandemic. The future competitiveness of traditional industries will depend on how effectively they seize new opportunities created by 5G networks, AI, and massive Internet of Things deployments. Internet companies and financial service providers already depend heavily on the infrastructure provided by these cloud leaders. Soon, growing number of cars, assembly lines, and cities will too along with owning the world's leading search engine and its most popular smartphone operating system, Google's parent company, Alphabet, dabbles in healthcare, drug development and autonomous vehicles. Amazon's sprawling e-commerce logistics network furnishes millions of people with basic consumer goods. In China, Alibaba and Tencent dominate payment systems, social media, video streaming, e-commerce, and logistics. They also invest in projects important to the Chinese government, such as the Digital Silk Road, which aims to bring emerging markets the undersea cables, telecommunication networks, cloud capabilities, and apps needed to run a digital society. Private sector technology firms are also providing a national security Uh, are also providing national security, a role that has traditionally been reserved for governments and the defense contractors they hire. When Russian hackers breached U.S. government agencies and private companies last year, it was Microsoft, not the National Security Agency or U.S. Cyber Command that first discovered and cut off intruders. Of course, private companies have long supported national security objectives. Before the biggest banks became too big to fail, that phrase was applied to the U.S. defense company Lockheed Corporation, now Lockheed Martin during the Cold War. But Lockheed just made the fighter jets and missiles for the US government. It didn't operate the Air Force or police the skies. The biggest technology companies are building the backbone of the digital world and policing that world at the same time. Big Tech's eclipse of the nation state is not inevitable. Governments are taking steps to tame an unruly digital sphere, whether it's China's recent moves targeting Alibaba and Ant Group, which derailed what would have been one of the world's biggest ever initial public offerings, the EU's attempts to regulate personal data, AI, and the large technology companies that it defines as digital gatekeepers, the numerous antitrust bills introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives, or India's ongoing pressure on foreign social media companies, the technology industry is facing a political and regulatory backlash on many fronts. Moreover, technology firms cannot decouple themselves from physical space, where they remain at the mercy of states. The code for the virtual worlds that these companies have created sits in data centers that are located on territory controlled by governments. Companies are subject to national laws. They can be fined or subjected to other sanctions. Their websites can be blocked, and their executives can be arrested if they break the rules. But... As technology grows more sophisticated, states and regulators are increasingly constrained by outdated laws and limited capacity. Digital space is ever-growing. Facebook now counts nearly 3 billion monthly active users. Google reports that over 1 billion hours of video are consumed on YouTube its video streaming platform, each day. Over 64 billion terabytes of digital information was created and stored in 2020, enough to fill some 500 billion smartphones. It is... In its next phase, this data sphere will see cars, factories, and entire cities wired with internet-connected sensors trading data. As this realm grows, the ability to control it will slip further beyond the reach of states. And because technology companies provide important digital and real-world goods and services, states that cannot provide those things risk shooting themselves in the foot if their draconian measures lead companies to stop their operations. Governments have long deployed sophisticated systems to monitor digital space, China created the so-called Great Firewall to control the information its citizens see, and the United States spy agencies established the Echelon Surveillance System to monitor global communications. But such systems can't keep tabs on everything. Fines for failing to take down illegal content are a nuisance for businesses, not an existential threat. And governments realize that they could sabotage their own legitimacy if they go too far. The potential for a popular backlash is one reason why even Russian President Vladimir Putin is unlikely to ever go as far as Beijing has in restricting citizens' access to the global internet. That is not to say that big tech is massively well-liked. Even before the pandemic, public opinion polls in the United States showed that what was once the most admired sector in the country was losing popularity among Americans. A majority of Americans are in favor of stricter regulations for big technology companies, according to a February 2021 Gallup survey. Global trust in these companies, especially social media firms, has also been hit hard during the pandemic, according to the annual trust barometer published by Edelman, a public relations consultancy. But even if getting tough on big tech is one of the few things on which both Democrats and Republicans can agree, the fact that there hasn't been a major crackdown yet is telling. The United States' combination of congressional dysfunction and Silicon Valley's potent lobbying power will likely continue to preclude expansive new regulation that could pose a serious threat to the digital giants. It is different in Europe, where the lack of homegrown cloud, search, and social media conglomerates makes passing ambitious legislation easier. And it is certainly different in China, where a recent round of regulatory crackdowns has sent shares of the country's own technology heavyweights reeling. In both Brussels and Beijing, politicians are trying to channel the power of the biggest technology companies in pursuit of national priorities. But with the cloud, AI, and other emerging technologies set to become even more important to people's livelihoods and to the ability of states to meet their people's basic needs, it is far from certain that the politicians will succeed. All right. You're muted. What did you think of that section? That was a long section.
1: It was a long section, but it was very powerful. It was fascinating to me. Very fascinating. He brings up some extremely important points. And uh, to me, he, he, he very well establishes the way things exist. And he warns of dangers in the future. But I keep when I think it, I keep thinking, yes, but what what mechanisms are in place now? Uh, Where's the power struggle? Where is it going to be and how is this going to play out? You know, a lot of this, he does a very good job establishing the present Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and the imminent future. But looking at looking down the road, Uh, if you have a a desirable outcome, then what is that desirable outcome? What does it look like? Do we really know what that's going to look like uh, between uh, the states and high-tech? And which one is gaining power? (laughs) The high-tech is, not the states. Mm -hmm. And it's becoming imbalanced. And so, yeah, China uh, wielded power but then again, uh, th- they, they can do that. Other, other governments cannot do that the way they did it. So therefore, the tech is getting more powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that power is not just domestic, it's worldwide. And so when you, when you control the people, you control the government.
0: Yeah. And I mean, China, they said they've enacted re- legislation that sent the share price of Alibaba or Tencent or whatever reeling. And if they see an existential threat, they will sort of cut out those sources of capitalization, you know. So these companies, they do rely on Western money to finance some of their endeavors, you know. And if they want to issue more shares, you know, more equity in their company, um, if the state has undermined the value of that equity, they'll be able to raise less money. And they'll be more reliant on the state. And I think maybe that's the whole point of, draconian regulations in China. And it's also sort of maintaining control of the state. They don't want Tencent or Alibaba to outrun their power. They don't want to wake up one day and all of a sudden they can't control these companies that run Chinese social media. So it makes sense. I I think one of the things that we learn looking at this foreign affairs is everybody's actions make sense. Even if they're against each other, there's a logic (laughs) to them
1: there is a logic there is no it's not just one side mhm there's more that there's yeah one thing we've learned here is there's more than one side and and as you said david where you stand depends on where you sit uh, if you're sitting in the united states with our system with our constraints with our opportunities with our regulations we're going to see it one way in china it's a different system they're going to see it a different way mhm and both are logical where you're sitting
0: and I mean you take a look at Europe and that's probably one of the most fascinating aspects of this particular article is they don't have homegrown conglomerate giants and so they're trying to say we want to protect our people and we believe that our market the European market the European people their buying power their purchasing power their consuming power is big enough where we can dictate terms over these tech giants um is that true or will Europe get left behind? In a technological revolution, all of the advancements will go to Chinese citizens and U.S. citizens, and none of them will flow to European citizens because they're trying to protect their citizens. That's, I'm sure, an argument that a tech company would offer anyone attempting to regulate the European market. Now, whether or not that's true, whether that's the truth or just a threat, remains to be seen.
1: Well, you have, first of all, the money. That's powerful. But then you have people, that's powerful, but then you have information and that's powerful. And so, uh, all three of those, the high tech companies are, are, building, are growing in. And so when you have, when you're growing in three, uh, uh, three areas of power and that power becomes even greater than, than the government states, then you have a conflict there. And, and as you say, they they can do things to protect their people, but then again, uh, what if their people was connected more with with the high tech internet than they are with the government? Yeah. And what if they what if what if they get more benefit from high tech than they do the government?
0: Yeah. So you the know? the restrictions placed by the European Commission on European citizens, what if that sort of doesn't afford them the level of connectivity that allows them to compete in the twenty first century? And yeah. Europe falls behind. It's a possibility.
1: It's a very big possibility. And it also, uh, the way they do it could affect their, their ability to grow uh, financially mm-hmm. a, as companies and as a, as nation, nation states. Uh, and they, so, uh, it, it's very intertwined.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you're going to start a, a technology startup, I'm thinking of like Skype. Skype started in Estonia. We're talking on Skype now. It got bought out by Microsoft. So it got bought off by an American company. But if the regulatory environment is more restrictive, why wouldn't you just go somewhere where it's less restrictive to start your company?
1: That's right. That's right. And, and if you do, if you do that, there again, if, if a state wants to become powerful, uh, why wouldn't they grow, create incentives for high tech to grow more in your country, in mm-hmm. your state? than other states, because that's powerful.
0: Yes, uh, unless you look at it from the Chinese perspective, what they're doing now, where it's only powerful if it's less powerful than you. If the power of these companies run amok, if you no longer can control the narrative, if you no longer have, if they're more powerful than the CCP, that's an existential threat to the Chinese government. So, that's and, true. And the thing is, these companies are so powerful because they're in everybody's pocket and everybody's living room. Um, you sort of have to be careful with how much deregulation you're going to allow, how much rope you're going to allow them, because they may hang you with it.
1: But then again, if looking at a scenario, if you have Chinese to make sure that they're more powerful than the high tech, and you have another uh, country X, the United States or Europe or say United States, and they start saying, okay, we're gonna have, we're gonna, we're going to support high tech and we're gonna become even more powerful. And all of a sudden they are connected with the world in such a way that's more powerful than China. Then even though China controls what they do in their state, the whole world around them becomes more powerful.
0: I, I mean, perhaps, but uh, uh, And
1: because Because the high tech, again, it's It's digital space. It's not physical space So when you talk about digital space I, I think I think what China's doing is Is reasonable. It's logical uh, When you're talking about physical Space, because that's how they, that's how they think And that's how they've grown themselves But digital space is not Is not uh, It's not physical Mm-hmm And so physical law, and he he mentioned that, too, physical, the the, maybe outdated. Go ahead.
0: But there's two billion people on WeChat that aren't on Facebook. I'm sure Facebook wants those customers, but they're on WeChat. And so it's like physical space still matters. And Chinese two billion person market matters. Um, So, I mean, I think that to sort of say two fifths of the world or whatever, you know, a one third of the world's population they'll be able to build something pretty substantial even if it's decoupled from our system and it's not like uh, the fact that it's a black box to us and the fact that the rest of the world is a black box to them we'll see who outcompetes whom um, see that's a good
1: scenario that's a good case study to say how is that going to play out uh, there's no easy answer to that mm-hmm. and i don't think i don't think anyone knows i don't think anyone really can no, definitively, because it's this is all brand new. Yeah, it's all it's all brand new kind of a uh, initiative. And when you talk about strategies and these kinds of wars, uh, well, there's a lot of history on wars, but there's no war on in the digital space that we can go back to mm-hmm. and S- learn from. So we're beginning to learn.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, should we continue with the article? Yeah, sure. Uh, do you want to read, or should I read?
1: Uh, I think I can read, I guess. Uh, The state strikes back. The most important question in geopolitics today might be, will countries that break up or clamp down on their biggest technology firms also be able to seize the opportunities of the digital revolution's next phase? Or will their efforts backfire? The EU alarmed that it, it has not given rise to digital giants the way the United States and China have, appears intent on finding out It is at the forefront of democratic societies pushing for greater sovereignty over digital space. In 2018, the EU passed a sweeping uh, data protection law that restricts restricts transfers of personal data outside the 27 member block and threatens steep fines on companies that fail to protect EU citizens sensitive information. A new regulatory package advancing in Brussels, would give the European Commission new powers to find internet platforms over illegal content, control high-risk AI applications, and potentially break up technology companies that EU bureaucrats deem too powerful. The EU and influential member states, such as France, are also calling for technology-focused industrial policies, including billions of euros of government funding, to encourage new approaches to pooling data and computing resources. The goal is to develop alternatives to the biggest cloud platforms that, unlike the current options, are grounded in European values. This is a massive gamble. Europe, acting from a position of weakness, is betting that it can corral the technology giants and unleash a new wave of European innovation. If it turns out instead that only the biggest technology platforms can muster the capital, talent and infrastructure needed to develop and run the digital systems that companies rely on, Europe will have only accelerated its geopolitical decline. The outcome hinges on whether a handful of large scale scale cloud platforms with all the attendant economic opportunities and challenges can continue to drive innovation or whether a group of companies operating under greater government supervision can still produce cutting edge digital infrastructure that is globally competitive. It is expensive to create and maintain digital space on a massive scale. Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft plowed a combined $109 billion into research to develop in 2019. That is roughly equal to Germany's total public and private R&D spending in the same period, and more than double the amount spent that year by the United Kingdom's government and private sector put together. If European states want greater control of the technology sector, they're going to have to invest much more money. But even if governments were willing to finance these digital capabilities themselves, money is only part of the picture. They would likely struggle to bring together the engineering and the other talent required to design, maintain, operate, and grow the complex cloud infrastructure. AI applications and other systems that make these technologies work at scale. Uh, Achieving and maintaining global leadership in fields such as cloud computing or semiconductors requires huge and sustained investments of financial and human capital. It also requires close relationships with customers and other partners across complex global supply chains. Today's modern semiconductor plants can cost in excess of $15 billion a piece and require legions of highly trained engineers to set them up and run them. The world's leading cloud service providers uh, can invest billions of dollars in R&D each year because they are continually refining their products in response to customers' needs and funneling their profits back into research. Governments and even, even groups of small firms working together would struggle to muster the resources needed to deliver these technologies at the scale required to power the global economy. Even in China, where the government is not afraid to throw its weight around, the Chinese Communist Party is counting on the country's biggest private sector technology companies to do the heavy lifting as it aims to build a wealthy and digitally advanced society. The next decade will test what happens as the politics of digital space and physical space converge. Governments and technology companies are poised to compete for influence over both worlds, hence the need for a better framework for understanding what the company's goals are and how their power interacts with that of governments in both domains. Fascinating, fascinating. Very interesting thesis this guy has very very interesting thesis and i think it's very timely it's very important what do you think of that section Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> is, so is this, the German public and private R&D spending, is that, is that uh, accessible? Is that is those, is that the. But if they're a private company, how do you know what private companies do? <laughs> oh. Okay. Yeah, that's probably that's probably yeah, I probably want to mean. Yeah, I see what you mean. Uh huh. Yeah, maybe. Well, well, since this, since the the, since this is so expensive, and it's extremely powerful, and it wields power, geopolitical power. Why wouldn't states uh, uh, create consortiums? And and. And pool resources instead of each person doing their own thing, Uh, because I think again, I I really take to heart his his, uh, framing of this of the physical space versus the digital space, and so does the digital space have to be refined to physical spaces? Uh, Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but he also says that that's, that's just money. You also have to have talent and organizational uh, structure. I know, but you have to pull it in. You have to organize it and you have to, to have a plan and a strategy and uh, a a plan within when you're controlled, like in China or even the United States, when you, you only have more control of it, it's much harder to establish something where the control is distributed. So it may not work. As, it, may, it may work in the future, but not the near future.
0: I've been muted the last five minutes.
1: Oh, you have? I've I have. heard
0: you. I know. I'm muted on the broadcast. I do that. I should mute myself to you as well. That way you can say you're muted and I'll remember both of them.
1: Oops. So oh, I guess that's too bad. You yeah. had some good things to say, David.
0: I guess what I was saying was I took a look at this $109 billion And that's uh, Germany's total public and private spending. And that's just our tech firms. And I was saying, you know, you were saying we should have a consortium of countries. And I was saying, yes, but even if you had the total government and private sector spending of the U.K. and Germany, that's 1.150 percent of our tech companies. That doesn't include every other company here and our government, federal government, which is huge. So it would be difficult for Europe to compete. It would be. Uh, That was my point.
1: Yeah, and I'm not saying they they should. I'm saying they're going to start thinking of that. Mm-hmm. You know, why don't we somehow pool resources together? Because it is expensive. It is powerful. Because where there's power, there's going to be innovation, and uh, there's I think there's going to be much more innovation in government states coming together in the digital space than they have been in the past. And they should be somehow, somehow. And uh, and and the and the, the risks the the geopolitical risk geopolitical risk I think are are becoming greater and we've seen we've seen that we see that in the United States with uh, our elections because when you have that information uh, you can uh, have access to the lifeblood of a uh, how a country works and like in the United States uh, they they affected voting they affected our our system
0: yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think we're doing okay. should we move on?
1: Sure, let's move on.
0: I apologize for being muted, but that was an accident. Uh, should I read?
1: Uh, yeah, the struggle with a, the struggle with big tech.
0: The struggle with big tech. Technology companies' orientations are no less diverse than the states with which they compete. Strands of globalism, nationalism, and techno-utopianism often coexist within the same company. Which outlook predominates will have important consequences for global politics and society. First are the globalists. Firms that believe their empires firms that built their empires by operating on a truly international scale. These companies, including Apple, Facebook, and Google, create and populate digital space, allowing their business presence and revenue systems to become untethered from physical territory. Each grew powerful by hitting on an idea that allowed it to dominate an economically valuable niche and then taking its business worldwide. The likes of Alibaba, ByteDance, and Tencent emerged at the top of China's massive domestic market before setting their sights on global growth, but the idea was the same same, set up shop in as many countries as possible, respect local rules and regulations as necessary, and compete fiercely. Sure, they have also benefited from policy and financial support from Beijing, but it is still a cutthroat, profit-driven approach to global expansion that is driving innovation at these firms. Then there are the national champions, which are more willing to align themselves explicitly with the priorities of their home governments. These firms are partnering with governments in various important domains, including the cloud, AI, and cybersecurity. They secure massive revenues by selling their products to governments, and they use their expertise to help guide them these same government's actions. The companies hewing closest to the national champion model are in China, where firms have long faced pressure to further national goals. Huawei and SMIC are China's core national champions in 5G and semiconductors. And in 2017, President Xi Jinping named Alibaba and Tencent, along with the search engine Baidu and the voice recognition company iFlytech, to China's national AI team, giving each of them a leading role in building out parts of China's AI-powered future. More than perhaps any other country, China has enlisted its technology giants during the pandemic, leaning heavily on digital services, including video conferencing and telemedicine, and even using them to enforce lockdowns and other travel restrictions as the pandemic took hold. It has also tapped Chinese technology firms to manage reopenings by providing digital health passports and engage in mask diplomacy by shipping badly needed medical supplies to needy countries to enhance China's soft power. Today, even the historically globalist U.S. companies are feeling the pull of the national champion model. Microsoft's growing role in policing digital space on behalf of the United States and allied democracies and targeting misinformation spread by state actors, particularly in China and Russia, and international crime syndicates, is leading it in that direction. Amazon and Microsoft are also competing to provide cloud computing infrastructure to the U.S. government. Amazon's new CEO, Andy Jassy, who previously headed its cloud business, was a member of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, a blue-ribbon advisory panel that published a major report earlier this year that is having a strong influence on the evolution of the United States' national AI strategy. The forces of globalism and nationalism sometimes clash with a third clamp, the techno-utopians. Some of the world's most powerful technology firms are headed by charismatic visionaries who see technology not just as a global business opportunity, but also as a potentially revolutionary force in human affairs. In contrast to the other two groups, this camp centers more on the personalities and ambitions of technology CEOs rather than the operations of the companies themselves. Whereas globalists want the state to leave them alone and maintain favorable conditions, conditions For global commerce, and national champions see an opportunity to get rich off the state, techno utopians look to a future in which the nation state paradigm that has dominated geopolitics since the 17th century has been replaced by something different altogether. Elon Musk, the CEO of SpaceX and Tesla, is the most recognizable example. With his open ambition to reinvent transportation, link computers to human brains, and make humanity a multi planetary species by calling Mars. Yes, he is also providing space lift capacity to the U.S. government, but he is chiefly focused on dominating near-space orbit and creating a future in which technology companies help societies evolve beyond the concept of nation-states. Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, has similar tendencies, even if he has become more open to government regulation of online content. DM, a Facebook-backed digital currency, had to be scaled back dramatically after financial regulators almost universally raised concerns. Thanks to the dominance of the U.S. dollar, governments retain a far stronger grip on finance than on other domains in digital space. That may not be true for long if Vitalik Buterin and the entrepreneurs building on top of his Ethereum ecosystem get their way. Ethereum, the world's second most popular blockchain after Bitcoin, is rapidly emerging as the underlying infrastructure powering a new generation of decentralized internet applications. It may pose an even greater challenge to government power than Diem. Ethereum's design includes smart contracts, which enable the parties to a transaction to embed the terms of doing business into hard-to-alter computer code. Entrepreneurs have seized on the technology and the surrounding hype to cook up new businesses Including betting markets, financial derivatives, and payment systems that are almost impossible to alter or abolish once they have been launched. Although much of this innovation to date has been in the financial realm, some proponents believe that blockchain technology and decentralized apps will be the keys to unlocking the next big leap forward for the web, the metaverse, a place where augmented and virtual reality, next-generation data networks, and decentralized financing and payment systems contribute to a more realistic and immersive digital world where people can socialize, oops, work, and trade digital goods. China still has its globalists and national champions, albeit with a more statist tilt than those in the United States, but it no longer has its own techno-utopians. The CCP once exalted Jack Ma, the co-founder of Alibaba and the country's most prominent entrepreneur, who revolutionized how people buy and sell goods and tried to create a new version of the World Trade Organization to facilitate e-commerce and promote direct global trade but the party reined him in after he gave a speech in October 2020, criticizing its financial regulators for stifling innovation. Beijing now has Ma and Alibaba on a much tighter lease, a a cautionary tale for any would-be techno-utopians in China who might consider challenging the state. Even so, China depends on the digital infrastructure provided by the likes of Ma to boost productivity and living standards, and thus ensure the CCP's long term survival. China's authoritarianism enables it to be more forceful in its regulation of the digital space and the companies that build and maintain it. But Beijing ultimately faces the same trade offs as Washington and Brussels. If it tightens its grip too much, it risks harming the country itself by smothering innovation. Oh, you're muted. All right, you're unmuted. What did you think?
1: Again, some very good points. I'll let you talk, though.
0: Okay. um, A very interesting section. I think that this was his trifurcation argument, I believe. There are globalists, there are statists, and there are techno-utopians. And I think that the truth is the future will look like some combination of the three. That's what I was saying at the beginning of the article. Um, and
1: I, agree, I agree with you.
0: Now, Apple, Facebook, and Google, to say that they're globalists, um, I, I suppose, you know, Amazon and Microsoft are very much tied to government contracts, but I feel like Amazon is globalist as well. I mean... They're all globalists to some degree. They're all statists to some degree. Um, I don't know. So to sort of say, these are in this camp, these are in that camp. These are such huge organizations that I'm sure that if you got 1% of the government contracts that Apple has with the U.S. government, you'd be a wealthy man for the rest of your life. Uh, If you got 1% of the government contracts that Facebook has with the U.S. government, you'd be a wealthy man for the rest of your life. I believe that's... Basically, how it works. Do you see? Do you see what I'm saying? Um. Yep. Uh. And then, of course, we have Alibaba, ByteDance, and Tencent. Now, I think he's looking at more of the software end of the Chinese market. So, I would sort of equate these with Facebook, Google and Snapchat maybe, I don't know. Um, ByteDance is sort of, my ByteDance is the TikTok company. Um, Alibaba is like the Amazon of China, and Tencent is sort of like the Facebook and, uh, of China, maybe even in Google, I don't know. Um, so Tencent does gaming, Tencent, I think Tencent develops WeChat, which is the everything app in China. It's how you pay, it's how you do everything. Um, I don't, know, I don't know enough about Chinese domestic technology companies to sort of comment on them, but I do know that they are wide-ranging companies that perhaps have more business activities than even the U.S. conglomerates, and understanding them in, and their relation to the state is perhaps even more difficult than understanding the U.S. tech conglomerates and their relationship to the state. Um because it's china so it's it's different i don't think it's quite as transparent as it is here uh
1: but but they do have similar logic they have different logic because they're sitting in a different place uh but they're still capitalizing if i could use that word in china they're still using and capitalizing on the power of Mm -hmm. this digital space and and All three of those are are emerging within China uh, as powerful for China. And so I think what he's getting into the techno utopians is that uh, even though uh, Apple, Facebook and Google uh, are powerful with the United States, that they're powerful unto themselves. They have more freedom in the United States to move further uh, on their own than they do, uh, say, in China. But that doesn't mean China is not a formidable uh, force that's going to connect with other countries uh, Mm -hmm. around the world. Well, I mean,
0: also I think one thing that I have to say about Tencent and ByteDance is that they're here. I mean, Alibaba's here as well. Um, TikTok has a huge user base in America. And the question is, are they trying to capture this key demographic of users, which is exactly what they're doing? You know, they got users, whatever, teenagers to mid-20s on TikTok all day long. I don't use TikTok, but I'm assuming that's who uses it. And that's that's a demographic that you want. You could sell advertisements and services to them. Or are they trying to collect data on these teenagers in America to give it back to the Chinese central government? That's like the argument the Trump administration used. I'm sure that their their actual, the reason they built the app was to provide this platform for users. And, and then sell advertisements to the users once you had a user base. I mean, that's why everyone builds an app. Now, the externality of collecting data on these users that you could give back to your parent nation, that's whether or not the app is intended to do that, the worry is that that's what the app will do eventually. You see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, because it exists. It's sitting right there in front of you. Why Mm -hmm. wouldn't you do it?
0: Yeah. And then Tencent. Now, we've had some uh, experience with Tencent. They're a big owner of Epic Games who makes Fortnite. And back during the Fortnite craze, I would definitely play Fortnite. I've played Fortnite on the podcast one episode, remember? That's
1: right. You coached
0: me. Um, That's right. Now, is the purpose of Fortnite to make billions of dollars selling in-game cosmetic enhancements to your character? Or is the purpose of Fortnite to sort of gauge the decision-making capabilities of its players from around the world and sort of collect metric data and give that back to the Chinese government? (laughs) <laughs> so, I mean, obviously Fortnite exists to be a game that people play, to be fun. Uh, but it does generate a lot of data on a lot of people.
1: Well, along those lines, uh, you, could, you could hypothesize an argument that, let's say TikTok, uh, that, all that information, uh, you have entertainment behavior of uh, a demographic, a young demographic of a country. Uh, their entertainment behavior, their interaction behavior, uh, what's important to them and how that's different than, uh, say, America is different than, 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 than China. And in Tencent Gaming, you have, uh, well, in TikTok and purchasing, you have buying behavior and entertainment behavior. With gaming, you have strategy and what's important to them as far as games are concerned and how do people think, what's their logic. Uh, when you start creating profiles uh, you can have profiles not just with individuals you're can have profiles with uh, subsets of a culture mm-hmm. and how do, how do they think in that country and if you know how they think in that country with strategies then you can use that to create uh, 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 different type of uh, political relationships that the that the populace would support mm-hmm. because you know how they think. So if when you know how the other person thinks, that's very powerful.
0: And I think the corollary to that is because we don't want to paint China as this nefarious uh, country putting these technologies into our country and then you know, leeching the data off and trying to make decisions. I think it's important to know Google, Facebook, can't really operate in China. And that may be, they know for a fact that if they operated in China, Facebook and Google would know things about the Chinese populace that the Chinese government doesn't want American companies to know. That may be one of the reasons that they're not allowed to operate there.
1: I think I'm, it's probably extremely true. I, I would believe that before anything else. Mm-hmm. I agree with that because, because that information of their populace, you want to be very careful, not only information. So the other thing too, you got to be careful with how we frame this is, is yeah, that the, that exists. Uh, but does that mean that, that, uh, uh, that's why they exist? This is, well, that could be just one outcome. The one thing they're using from that, uh, they, they're using it also to grow. They're using it also to have influence. They're also also to have it to, to grow themselves within their country Mm -hmm. to learn about themselves. Uh, So there's all, it's just one, just one application. There's all, it's just so many applications you have when you have that much information, that much data, uh, that you can learn how things go. Uh, how things are, uh, like the present. Uh, but if you're looking at the future and forecasting, uh, you can create models to forecast how these, how will, uh, the the prediction of how different actions will do, and then you can prescribe what will happen in the future as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, it it can be used in many different ways. And it's not like that's why they're there. prime. I think the primary reason they're there is just to, uh, grow financially and grow their grow their uh, user base yeah because those fa- are secondary the others are secondary objectives
0: this is a fascinating thing to me um, I saw a graph one time about the money George Lucas made from Star Wars and when you think of Star Wars what is Star Wars to you it's just a movie it's a movie and that was yep. definitely not what he made his money on because of Star Wars that's right he made his it's money merchandising. on merchandising Merchandising. Merchandising yeah. was, I think, 70% of the revenue, 70, 80%. So he could license shows and he would make 100 million. He could sell action figures and he would make 500 million. So he made an order of magnitude more money selling merchandise than he did actually making the movies or selling people tickets to the movies. And it's fascinating to me when you think of TikTok having uh, 50 million. Twenty million young Americans use it. That may be valuable. That may be worth two billion dollars. But the data that they're generating and how you can use that may be worth ten billion dollars. Do you see what I'm saying? And it's difficult. Yeah, it's difficult to gauge in tech what is actually valuable.
1: That's exactly right. And that's just yeah. And also, how many ways can that be used? Uh, again the tech the digital space is a whole different ballgame. Uh-huh. it takes a different way of thinking of things uh this, the same with tencent and gaming because uh, if you think about it uh, if you want to if you want to develop uh, expertise in uh, like uh, military pilots bomber pilots or military fighter jets uh you have simulations you have simulated games mm-hmm uh-huh. And and you can hone their ability to make decisions and you can tell which ones make good decisions, which that which people don't make good decisions. Well, what if what if you could do that to a whole huge populace of millions of people? And that people resided a certain demographics within a country. Yeah. You know exactly their capabilities and what how their decision making process is and and how they will react to a certain type of stimuli. And so you can create stimuli to have an outcome. Mm-hmm. So you can backward backward engineer that. It, it's really it's really a uh, 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 a little bit of uh, setback. Uh, sobering. It's really sobering the more you think of it, and it's not going to stop. It's going to keep going. Mm-hmm. The sober aspect of it is, is yes, that's a problem, but then again it's not going away. So we have to address it, and we have to start. Making it to where it's going to be beneficial
0: Yeah, and so what does the future look like shall we get back to the article? Sure. Yes, do you want our to read digital
1: futures? Wow Our digital futures Do you want to read uh, Let's see, I think I think it'd be better if you read
0: okay, I'll read our digital okay. futures As technology companies and governments negotiate for control over digital space, US and Chinese technology giants will operate in one of three geopolitical environments. One in which the state reigns supreme, rewarding the national champions, one in which corporations wrest control from the state over digital space, empowering the globalists, or one in which the state fades away, elevating the techno-utopians. In the first scenario, the national champions win, and the state remains the dominant provider of security, regulation, and public goods. Systemic shocks such as the COVID-19 pandemic and long-term threats such as climate change coupled with the public backlash against the power of technology firms entrench government authority as the only force that can resolve global challenges. A bipartisan push for regulation in the United States rewards patriotic companies that deploy their resources in support of national goals. The government hopes that a new generation technology-enabled services for education, healthcare, and other components of the social contract will boost its legitimacy in the eyes of middle-class voters. Beijing and other authoritarian governments double down on cultivating their own national champions, pushing hard for self-sufficiency while competing for influence in important global swing markets such as Brazil, India, and Southeast Asia. China's private technology sector becomes less independent, and its technology companies no longer go public on international stock exchanges. U.S. allies and partners find it much harder to balance their ties with Washington and Beijing. Europe is the big loser here, as it lacks technology companies with the financial capacity or technological wherewithal to hold their own against those of the two major powers. As the EU's push for digital sovereignty sputters, and the U.S.-Chinese Cold War makes national security in the technology space a dominant priority. Europe's technology sector has little choice but to follow Washington's agenda. As the United States and China decouple, companies that can recast themselves as national champions are rewarded. Washington and Beijing both funnel resources to technology firms to align them with their national goals. The increasingly fragmented nature of the internet, meanwhile, makes operating on a truly global scale increasingly difficult. When data, software, or advanced semiconductor technology can't move across borders because of legal and policy barriers, or when computers or phones made by U.S. and Chinese companies can't talk to one another, it raises costs and regulatory risks for companies. Amazon and Microsoft might not find it hard to adapt to this new order, as they are already responding to growing pressure to support national security imperatives. Both companies already compete to provide cloud services to the U.S. government and intelligence agencies, but Apple and Google could find working with the U.S. government more uncomfortable. The former has balked at government requests to crack encrypted smartphones, and the latter pulled out of a project with the Pentagon on image recognition. Facebook might have the hardest time navigating a landscape that favored national champions if it is seen as a Providing a platform for foreign disinformation without offering useful assets for the government, such as cloud computing or military AI applications. How about the useful asset of – this is me editorializing – knowing exactly what everyone thinks and does and who they associate with. That's a useful asset. Um, The same data they sell to their customers they could sell to the military. Okay. Moving on, this would be a more geopolitically volatile world with a greater risk of strategic and technological bifurcation. Taiwan would be a major concern as U.S. and Chinese companies continue to rely on the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company as a major supplier of cutting-edge chips. Washington is already moving to cut off leading Chinese technology firms from Taiwan and TSMC, fueling impressions in Beijing that Taiwan is being dragged further into the U.S. orbit. Although it remains unlikely that China would choose to invade Taiwan over semiconductors alone, the potential for a military conflict with the United States that escalates beyond Taiwan would be too great, and the damage to China's international standing and business environment would be too severe. It remains a potentially potent tail risk. A world of national champions would also impede the international cooperation needed to address global crises. Whether a pandemic disease more lethal than COVID-19 or a surge of global migration induced by climate change, it would be ironic if technology nationalism made it harder for governments to address these problems given the role of such crises in shoring up the state's position as the provider of last resort in the first place. In the second scenario, the state holds on but in a weakened condition, paving the way for the ascendancy of the globalists. Unable to keep pace with technological innovation, regulators accept that governments will share sovereignty over digital space with technology companies. Big tech beats back restrictions that could curtail its overseas operations, arguing that the loss of market opportunities will harm innovation and ultimately governments' ability to create jobs and meet global challenges. Rather than accept a technological cold war, companies pressure governments to agree on a set of common rules that preserve a global market for hardware, software, and data. Apple and Google would arguably have the most to gain from this outcome. Instead of being forced to choose between a US and a Chinese-dominated internet, Apple could continue to offer its own unique technology ecosystem, catering to elites in both San Francisco and Shanghai. Google's advertising-heavy revenue model would thrive as people in democracies and authoritarian countries alike consume products and services that commodified every piece of personal data. The triumph of globalism would also help Alibaba, which hosts the world's largest e-commerce websites, ByteDance, whose video-sharing app TikTok has helped it achieve a valuation north of $140 billion would be free to serve up viral videos to a global audience, supercharging its AI algorithms and its global revenues. Tencent is also a globalist, but cooperates far more deeply with China's internal security apparatus than Alibaba. It would find it easier to trend in the direction of a national champion as an ideological competition between Washington and Beijing intensified. The globalists need stability to succeed over the coming decade. Their worst fear is that the United States and China will continue to decouple, forcing them to choose sides in an economic war that will raise barriers to their attempts to globalize their businesses. Their fortunes would improve if Washington and Beijing decided that, overregulation risks undercutting the innovation that drives their economies. In the case of Washington, that means pulling back from an industrial policy designed to convince companies that they can thrive as national champions. For Beijing, it means preserving the independence and autonomy of the private sector. A world in which the globalists reign supreme would give Europe a chance to reassert itself as a savvy bureaucratic player, capable of designing the rules that allow technology companies and governments to share sovereignty in digital space. Washington and Beijing would still be the two dominant global powers, but the failure of the former's industrial policy to push and the latter's quest to elevate national champions would loosen the two powers' grip on geopolitics increase demand for global governance, and create more opportunities for global rule setting. This is a world with somewhat weaker American and Chinese governments, but one that offers both countries their best chance to cooperate on urgent global challenges. In the final scenario. The oft predicted erosion of the state finally comes to pass. The techno utopians capitalize on widespread disillusionment with governments that have failed to create prosperity and stability, drawing citizens into a digital economy that disintermediates the state. Confidence in the dollar as a global reserve currency erodes or collapses. Cryptocurrencies prove too much for regulators to control and they gain wide acceptance, undermining government's sway over the financial world. The disintegration of of centralized authority renders the world substantially less capable of addressing transnational challenges for technological visionaries with vaulting ambitions and commensurate resources. The question of patriotism becomes moot. Musk plays an ever greater role in deciding how space is explored. Facebook book substitutes for the public square, civil society, and the social safety net creating a blockchain-based currency that gains widespread uses. The implications of a world in which techno-utopians call the shots are the hardest to tease out, in part because people are so accustomed to thinking of the state as the principal problem-solving actor. Governments would not go down without a fight, and the erosion of the US government's authority would not give techno-utopians free reign. The Chinese state would also need to suffer a collapse in domestic credibility. The less that government stand in their way, the more techno-utopians will be able to shape the evolution of the new world order, for good and for ill. Very dramatic.
1: Very dramatic. Very interesting. Yeah, that's getting more hypothetical, but uh, it's all possible. It's all possible. Actually, what I, when I hear things like this, I think, yeah, that's possible. It's very unlikely. It's not going to be that like that. But there's going to be part of that in whatever happens. Mm-hmm. So it's not totally wrong and it's not totally right. It's just, yeah, these kinds, of, all these, a mixture of these things will happen in the future. But anyway, uh, a lot of this is a very good article, David. This yeah. is fascinating. Fascinating.
0: I, want, I, t- I take a little bit of exception to talking about how Apple and Google are the globalists. Where is it? Let me me find it, huh? Okay. Yeah, here it is. Um, Amazon and Microsoft might not find it hard to adapt to this new order, but Apple and Google could find working with the U.S. government more uncomfortable. The former has balked at government requests to crack encrypted smartphones, and the latter pulled out of a project with the Pentagon on image recognition. Okay. I think... Honestly, it was a huge government contract, and it was so big for the Google, the image recognition, mm-hmm. that it had to be reported. Um, and it was Google employees that said, we don't want to work with the government on image recognition, on facial recognition. And they pulled out of it. Uh contract went to someone else. That was a PR thing. And I think Google is so large that they could sort of have shadowy under the table contracts with the U.S. government where they do work and they don't let the rest of their employees that are working on Search or Android or whatever else know about it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You can have entire divisions of your company doing work with the U.S. government on stuff like this. And I think this is anecdotal evidence that these companies will balk. I also believe this uh, government request to crack encrypted smartphones. It was that Santa Barbara shooter and I think the Santa Barbara police was asking Apple to unencrypt his smartphone, or maybe it was the Beltway shooter, and they said, no, you know, if we ask any police officer, any police agency, you know, Wheat Ridge Police or Golden Police, they say, oh, crack this guy's smartphone, and we just do it because you ask, that's a bad precedent to set. That doesn't mean that they're unwilling to work with governments. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh Uh-huh. Like, Mm -hmm. a a local police office is different than the federal government. If uh, Joe Biden and the Republicans in Congress and the Democrats in Congress said, we want to switch all of our systems from Windows to Mac OS over the next 10 years, and we want to give you a $750 billion contract to do that, do you think Apple would say, no, thanks, we don't like to work with the government? Of course they would say yes. You know, oh, you want to give us a trillion dollars to switch from Windows to Apple? Like, Of course they would do that, right?
1: I think the difference is uh, an act versus a policy. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm not doing that. That doesn't mean there's not going to have a policy around that. Uh, so a policy applies to everyone, but you can have an act for. Uh, He's characterizing
0: should, these companies based upon an anecdote, I guess is what I'm saying.
1: It, that, that's what he said. Yeah. Yeah. And an anecdote is not the same as 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 the actual policy that they don't do that at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they could do it. Uh, but in this case they didn't. So you can't just take one and generalize. Yeah. I, I see what you mean. I, I kind of agree with you. Yeah. But, um, he, he, he does throw a lot of, uh, facts around and then he does that generalization quite a bit and, uh, it's kinda, if once you think of it from what you identified there, if you go through with that with that view, he does that with a lot of his arguments, mm-hmm. and so it's it's spoken like a true consultant.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He says uh, it's it's uh, the lot the logic is more of selling, and not necessarily revealing uh, different types of pa- facts. Yeah, or even even patterns.
0: I think it's fascinating too because I brought up like the numbers. I brought up the research and development spending after the last section. You use numbers when it suits you. You use anecdotes when that suits you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not about making the strongest argument possible logically. It's about making the strongest possible argument narratively.
1: That's a good way to put it. Yeah, exactly. Because he's a salesman. Uh-huh. And uh, well, that, that's not fair. Uh, this does have that type of a, a slant to it. Put yes. it that way. And at least at least to me when I, when I read this and says, well, it is, this is the kind of arguments that would work in different different scenarios with different groups of people, uh, but a uh, an academician or even uh, someone who is uh, a diplomat uh, would would be very very cautious using these kinds of arguments. Mm-hmm.
0: Also, I do think what he's presenting is vague enough. a globalist world, a decentralized world, and a techno-utopian world where it's obviously going to be some combination of that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know the techno utopians may see uh, erosion of state power in a lot of areas but of course the state is still the prime actor uh, and they never allow cryptocurrencies to supplant reserve currencies of nations you know something like that might happen i don't know it could so it it could be pieces little bits and pieces of each one
1: well, the trifurcation is is not necessarily uh, specific on this is what's going to happen. It's like it's a way to view different aspects of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, what what actually will play out is something which is a combination of all of them, uh, because that's just how the real world works. But it's a good way to think about the different aspects of, of how you move forward. And they are three different aspects. And uh, actually, it's rather than uh, than movements, uh, these are three different characteristics that you bring to the table to discuss an issue. Yeah. It's not necessarily uh, these are three directions we're going to go. Uh, these are three categories of considerations uh, in our deliberations moving forward. I think more importantly is, is how the different states look at these characteristics, these characteristic groups, you know, how does China look at those three divisions and how does Europe look at those three divisions and where you sit really depends on how you look at them.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, if, if one works best for Europe, perhaps the globalist model, that's what they're going to push for. If, if one works best for China, the nationalist model, that's what they're going to push for. Um, and I guess what he's saying is that the digital world, the digital space, has so much power that just because countries will advocate for a specific outcome, that doesn't necessarily mean that countries have the final say anymore. The digital world itself is evolving so quickly that it may offer goods and services that countries can't control. They find it's too late. Um, yeah. Shall we finish the article?
1: Yeah. The Brave New Digital World. I think uh, to, to spend... Uh, Spin off on what you just said. I totally agree with you, David, that uh, uh, what the future holds, there is a uh, you can't it's a movement that can't be stopped. It's an immovable machine that's going to happen. And so uh, you can hypothesize things that might happen, but it's going to happen. And uh, because it's so powerful that uh, you have to be careful uh, how you move forward in it. A brave new digital world. Shall I finish it off? Sure. Okay, I think I can do that now. Uh, A generation ago, the foundational premise of the internet was that it would accelerate the globalization that transformed economies and politics in the 1990s. Many hoped that the digital age could foster the unfettered flow of information, challenging the grip of authoritarian holdouts who thought they would escape the so-called end of history. The picture is different today. A concentration of power in the hands of a few very large technology firms and the competing interventions of US, Chinese, and EU centered power blocks have led to a much more fragmented digital landscape. The consequences for the future world order will be no less profound. Right now, the world's largest technology firms are assessing how best to position themselves as Washington and Beijing steal themselves for protecting competition uh protracting competition. The United States believes that its foremost geopolitical imperatives is to prevent its displacement by its techno-authoritarian rival. China's top priority is to ensure that it can stand on its own two feet economically and technologically before a coalition of advanced industrial democracies stifles its further expansion. Big tech will tread cautiously for now to make sure it does not further compound government insecurity about losing authority but as us chinese competition grows more entrenched these firms will wield their leverage more proactively if they manage to establish themselves as the indispensable companies much like the us considers united states uh, considers itself the indispensable nation the national champions will push for greater government sub- subsidies and preferential treatment over their rivals they will also press for greater decoupling, arguing that their vital work needs maximum protection from adversarial acting. The globalists will argue that governments will unable will be unable to sustain economic and technological competitiveness over the long haul if they turn inward and adopt a bunker mentality. American globalists will note that big Asian and European companies, far from exiting China, are boosting their presence there and that Washington will hurt only itself by forcing American companies out of the world's largest consumer market. To preempt the government charge that they are putting their bottom lines above national security, they will argue that deeper levels of decoupling will inhibit U.S.-Chinese cooperation on urgent transnational challenges, such as deadly pandemics and climate change. The Chinese globalists will argue that the CCP's ability to sustain robust growth and therefore domestic legitimacy will ride on whether China can establish itself as a hub of global innovation. And the techno-utopians? They will be happy to work quietly biding their time while the national champions and the globalists duke it out over who will shape government policy. The techno-utopians will use traditional companies and decentralized projects such as Ethereum, Ethereum, to explore new frontiers in digital space, such as the metaverse, or new approaches to providing essential services. They will strike an understanding tone when the U.S. government hauls them in for government hauls them in before Congress every now and then, per usual, to denounce their egos and power, taking minimal steps to appease policymakers but deploying aggressive lobbying for efforts to undermine any efforts by Washington to bring them to heel. This does not mean that societies are heading toward a future that witnesses the demise of the nation-state, the end of governments, and the dissolution of borders. There's no reason to think these predictions are any more likely to come true today than they were in the 1990s. But it is simply no longer tenable to talk about big technology companies as pawns the government masters can move around on a geopolitical chessboard. They are increasingly geopolitical actors in and of themselves. And as U.S.-Chinese competition plays an increasingly dominant role in global affairs, they will hold growing leverage to shape how Washington and Beijing behave. Only by updating our understanding of their geopolitical power can we make better sense of this brave new digital world.
0: There we go. We did it. That was... Ian Bremmer's article entitled The Techno Polar Moment, How Digital Powers Will Reshape the Global Order. What did you think? Final thoughts.
1: Final thoughts is that he says a lot of things. He has different views. And I think you've got to be really careful taking his points uh, that they're not just one point. There are many different points, many different views, uh, many different ways of evaluating what he's doing. Sometimes he has strategies, sometimes he has facts, sometimes he has characteristics of facts. And so you got to be really careful in this argument. Uh, but he does bring up some very good points, a good way of looking at the future. And I think it's important to listen to these voices, to Ian Brimmer and other voices and understand what they're saying, uh, but then also listen to other people too.
0: Hmm. I, I wonder, um, you know, because we always do a meta analysis of everything. Ian Bremmer, as the head of a consultancy um, that sort of mixes business and politics, uh, writing in a publication designed for lay people. I suppose it's lay people that are interested in international affairs. Um, is this just PR for his firm? Uh, you know, what's the point of him writing an article like this? Does it show that he's a knowledgeable guy that has command over industry and geopolitics? And if you're in a tech-based company, you may hire the Eurasia Group to help you do risk assessments of should we invest um, in expansion in, in Taiwan? Should we advance invest in expansion in, in Shanghai? Um, is that the type of guy that you hire to do a risk assessment of that? And I mean, he's a very good storyteller. Um, And I'm sure that what you would get if you hired the Eurasia group would be different than, you know, what you get in this article. This is just the front facing. But uh, I found this very heavy on anecdotes and not particularly heavy on um, statistics. Now, I think that helps you tell a better story, this particular article, but I don't think it helps you make better decisions.
1: That's a good place to end. I think that's a good summary of this article. And uh, I I agree with you. I agree with you. Uh, But in saying that, I just want to say that it's a good article. It's something that people should read, should think about. And we need to listen to all voices. Mm -hmm. Diplomats, academicians, consultants, politicians, I think it's good.
0: Yes. And I think that he has a lot of interesting sort of outlooks on the future. And I think a lot of these will come true because they're sort of universal. Right.
1: A lot of it is that. Yeah, it's vague enough to worry that's going to happen and how it happens will be more specific. But, uh, you know, he paints a very good general picture and, and a good knowledge of what's happening.
0: Mm hmm. So do you think we should leave it there? And uh...
1: Let's just leave it there.
0: Okay, this has been the Sons of Sequoia podcast. We're live every Tuesday and Thursday at 9 a.m. Mountain Time. We're available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Is there anything you'd like to say as we leave our listeners today?
1: Keep on talking, but listen more than you talk. And try to understand what the other person is saying.